Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today I'm talking about Season 6, Episode 13, Dead Things, where Warren's ex-girlfriend Katrina returns, the trio tries to blame their crimes on Buffy, and Buffy is sure she's come back from the dead wrong and seeks Tara's help. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Along with the recap of Dead Things, I'll talk about whether Spike's and Buffy's actions and choices are true to their characters as they were developed in earlier seasons, how committing crimes together shapes Jonathan, Andrew, and Warren as individual characters and the trio as a group. Ways that Buffy's choices and actions call back to faith and expand on themes from earlier seasons and a strong action subplot about murder that's enmeshed in a main plot where Buffy strives to understand or maybe to escape herself. As always, there'll be no spoilers except the end when I talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the hellmouth. Dead Things aired the first time on February 5, 2002. It was directed by James A. Contner and written by Stephen S. DeKnight. It starts with an opening conflict, as it should, to draw viewers into the episode. And in Dead Things, this conflict relates to the main plot, though it takes a while to sort out what that main plot is because we have such a strong action subplot here. The scene starts with a bed that's made, the camera pans past lit candles, magazines, large area rugs, and off camera we hear sounds that at first sound like fighting, things breaking, Buffy breathing hard, but finally we see Spike and Buffy under one of the large area rugs, naked. And Buffy says, we miss the bed again. As they talk, she sits up partway, asks if it's a new rug, and compliments Spike on what he's done with his crypt. He jokes that he ate a decorator once, maybe some of it stuck. And Buffy kind of laughs, and later on I wonder how much that plays into or signals to her the feeling that she has changed, or maybe confirms it, because while Spike always joked about things like that, In the past, typically, Buffy didn't find it amusing. Now Buffy talks about her bedroom that maybe she needs to update it, and Spike starts to answer, but then goes in a different direction and says, are we having a conversation? Buffy responds, what? No, no, maybe. Spike says, hmm, and Buffy asks, what? And Spike answers, well, isn't this usually the part where you kick me in the head and run out, virtue fluttering? Buffy says, somewhat sheepishly, that's the plan, soon as my legs start working. I've been questioning and will question in this episode whether it's consistent that Spike keeps trying to isolate Buffy from her friends. And maybe this conversation and this whole scene gives a little more reason why, because it appears Spike wants more from Buffy than sex, and she apparently is the one who is always racing off. 
Now, though, he's happy enough. He laughs and tells her she's amazing, and she thinks he is a pretty good lover himself. But then Spike starts talking about the things Buffy does and makes the mistake of saying he's never been with, quote, such an animal, end quote. Buffy clearly disturbed, says she's not an animal, and Spike says, you want to see the bite mark? Buffy now starts looking for her clothes, and Spike says, what is this to you, this thing we have? Buffy answers, what? We don't have a thing. We have this. That's all. And Spike asks if she even likes him, and Buffy tells him sometimes. And he goes on, but you like what I do to you. She doesn't answer. He takes out handcuffs and says, do you trust me? And Buffy responds, Never. And the scene cuts at 2 minutes 57 seconds to Andrew, Jonathan, and Warren. Echoing Buffy's line, they argue because they don't trust one another with their things. They are all crammed into some sort of hideaway and having trouble uh, with the stress of living so close together. A little bit of thematic resonance from the previous scene, not that Buffy is living with Spike, but she is having trouble being so close to Spike and how to negotiate boundaries, which is essentially what these guys are talking about. Warren interrupts them. The cerebral dampener is ready to be charged. Right now, that device looks like a walnut. They all wear red lensed glasses to shield their eyes, and Jonathan's spell turns it into a shiny metal orb. It also burns his hand. We're now at 4 minutes 27 seconds, right about 10% through. Usually here or sooner, we see the story spark or inciting incident that sets the main plot rolling. Both key plots in the episode have already begun. Buffy's will be to find out what is wrong with her. She thinks there is something wrong with her. She wants to know what it is. And Warren, Jonathan, and Andrew want to use this dampener for reasons that now become clear because Warren, excited, says with this device, they can now make any woman they desire, quote, our willing sex slave, end quote, and we go to credits. That is the storyline that will lead to the trio killing someone, and it is mainly Warren's story. It intersects with Buffy's storyline as well. Going back to Warren, when he says willing sex slave, is he aware of the oxymoron? The other two, Andrew and Jonathan, don't seem to be, at least throughout the first half of the episode. Most likely, Warren gets it. He's phrasing it this way for their benefit. On return from the credits, Buffy hands a customer a bag of fast food and says, double meat is double sweet. When her coworker Gina gives her a look, Buffy says, just something I'm trying. This is a nice bit of minor conflict that tells us that Buffy is trying to make the best of her job. And notice that each scene has had minor conflict before more significant conflict, which is a great way to keep your audience engaged because nothing is wasted here. There is no throwaway dialogue. It all matters. It all has conflict. We get another minor conflict when Tara rushes in and apologizes for being late. So she doesn't just walk up and say hi. She 
she says she's so sorry for being late. And Buffy tells her it's okay. Time has no meaning there. Another clue to Buffy's feelings about her job. In the break room, Tara asks why Buffy asked her to come there. Are things bad? She thinks it's about Willow and that Willow might have hurt someone. A great way to get in through more conflict in the form of Tara's concern, some backstory about Willow. And Buffy reassures her Willow is fine and doing really well, that Tara would be proud of her. Buffy then explains that Spike can hurt her and she glances at her wrists and then puts them behind her back, a nod to those handcuffs. That moment and the earlier use of the camera showing us the made bed, the candles, the magazines, and we only hear the sounds of Spike and Buffy are both good examples of showing the audience and telling the audience about the characters having sex, what type of sex play, without showing it. And that is a good technique either if you're writing for a medium that has strict limits on what can be explicit or not, or if your audience, if you're writing books, does not want explicit sex or even specific mention of it. This episode is great for ways of showing these scenes without showing them and that can also be very powerful as a dramatic storytelling technique regardless of censors or audience wishes it can be more powerful for the audience to use their own imagination. Tara is very concerned and asks if the chip stopped working but Buffy clarifies it's just Buffy. Spike can hit her not anyone else and she wants to know about the spell that brought her back. She tells Tara she feels different and she thinks maybe she came back wrong. Tara stutters a little showing her stress as she says no. She's sure that's not the case but she does agree to check. This calls back to some of the angst in the early episodes about the dangers of the spell. At 7 minutes 42 seconds, Andrew and Jonathan are in the van watching Warren on a monitor. The three of them mix up who is Mad Dog 1, Mad Dog 2, or 3. More minor conflict that brings us into the scene and keeps us engaged as we learn what's going on. Warren is inside what looks like a nice restaurant with a bar. He has some kind of small camera on and an audio device so that the other two can see and hear. He tells them to keep an eye out for the Slayer, but they are so focused on all the women that they can see through Warren's camera. One of them says, it's like candy, and the other says, juicy, pulsating candy. They suggest different women to Warren. This use of childlike language, the it's like candy, and yet that cross to adolescence, juicy, pulsating candy, shows that place that these two are in and adds to the idea that they are blocking out, maybe choosing not to grasp, or perhaps really not grasping that they are about to do something horrible to human beings. They are looking at it through the lens uh, of almost, maybe not childhood, but early adolescent sex fantasies as if they are in 
a comic book in some kind of story where no one is really going to get hurt. Or maybe a better way, since they're watching it on video, is in a video game where they can just act these things out and experience them, but no real person will get hurt. Warren, in contrast, has a purpose as we find out. Andrew uh, wants the redhead. Jonathan says she's too tall. The two of them argue. But Warren says the target is acquired. They're surprised it's a brunette whom we see from the side. And they argue with him, but he throws the microphone and camera into a drink, frying their eardrums when it fizzles out. This adds to the sense that Warren is the one in charge of these three. In some ways, they act like they're equal, but he's the one who goes into the restaurant. He's the one who decides when they can keep watching or not, and he will continue to be the leader. It's also notable that he refers to Buffy as the Slayer, not as Buffy, and I'm pretty sure that continues throughout the episode when they talk about her. It's the Slayer, making her, too, less of of a person. Warren now sits down next to the brunette. I did not remember when I first watched this, I did not recognize Katrina even when she turned to face him until they started talking. She was only in that one episode, the one with April the robot back in season five. Now Warren says to her, so how did you get so beautiful? And Katrina scoffs and says, okay, does that line usually work? And she turns toward him and says, what the hell are you doing here? He calls her Katrina and that's when it clicks for me. This is his ex-girlfriend. If we weren't sure, the conversation fills us in and is also filled with conflict. She tells him she was very clear she never wanted to see him again. He holds up some bills and waves to the server, but she covers her wine glass with her hand. A nice reference to the idea of people drugging someone else's drink. That's essentially what Warren is about to do, but in a way that Katrina can't predict and can't protect herself from. He asks if she's still upset about that thing, and Katrina asks which thing, the wind-up sex fantasy toy he built, or when, quote, little miss nuts and bolts, end quote, tried to choke Katrina to death. Another great example of filling the audience in through conflict between these two characters. I buy this whole conversation. There's genuine reasons for them to talk about these things. This isn't just Katrina saying, hey, remember that time when you did this and this and this, and they both already know it. Warren says he made a few mistakes, but she says, no, it was her mistake lowering herself to be with a jerk like him. And he tells her, seeming sincere, that he just wanted to talk to try to work things out. Her scorn and, and that comment about lowering herself almost makes me feel for Warren. Before I know how the whole episode's going to play out, it calls back to that robot episode where he made a lot of mistakes. It seemed like it came from loneliness. And while he never took responsibility for the things he did, he left Buffy to deal with everything. His initial desire to create the 
this robot didn't seem so horrible. And Warren could have gone either way after that. He could have learned from that experience. Now, we know as an audience that he didn't, but just for a moment when he's with Katrina, you kind of feel for, I kind of felt for this guy. And that is a key to a good antagonist, that they are not just evil, cartoony villains. Despite that the trio is pretty cartoony, uh, even Warren has some layers, but given what he's doing, I have no real sympathy for him. And it's clear since he walked in there with a dampener that he knew Katrina wasn't going to talk to him and he didn't care what she wanted as a person. He takes out the protective glasses, the dampener flashes, Katrina stares at it and then at Warren and in a very robotic voice says, I love you, master. And Warren takes off the glasses and says, I love you too, baby. And the way he says that line and the line itself confirms he's not acting out of loneliness or love. He's not trying to reconnect. He is angry and he is looking for revenge. At 10 minutes, 12 seconds, Buffy returns home. Xander and Dawn are dancing in the living room and she asks if they're singing again, referencing the musical. Xander dips Dawn at the end of the song, and they all reassure her it's only dancing to prepare for the wedding. Buffy's too tired to join them. Xander tells her she's been going at it too hard between the double meet and, quote, pounding the big evil, end quote. They all invite her to go to the bronze for glasses of frosty relaxation. Xander says it's on him. It's the, quote, nectar of the working man, end quote. But Buffy wants to curl up on the couch with Dawn and stay home. She doesn't finish her thought because a car honks outside and Dawn grabs her jacket. She is going to Janice's overnight. Buffy's not buying it, referring back to that Halloween episode where Dawn and Janice stayed out all night, but the others reassure her that they talked with Janice's mom. It's legit. And Dawn says, I didn't think you'd care. You're never home, so... Buffy asks her to stay saying she's here now, quote, all visible and everything, end quote, a reference to gone. But Janice's mom is going to teach Dawn how to make grilled tortillas. And you can see that Dawn is longing for this feeling of being part of a family and a home. And this is the closest she's gotten to it in some time. And she finishes, it's not like I knew you'd be around. Buffy looks sad when Dawn leaves, and she turns to her friends and says, Frosty Nectar, now please? At 12 minutes, Katrina, dressed in a French maid outfit, pours champagne for all three of the trio in their underground lair and calls them master, using that emotionless voice again, and she stares straight ahead. They toast to crime. Andrew coughs on the champagne and says, crime tastes funny. Jonathan circles Katrina, who has more or less frozen in place holding the champagne bottle, and he is saying, wow and giggling. Andrew adds that she's really cute. Warren's offended by cute and goes on about her silky skin, the shape of her lips, how her nose crinkles when she laughs and says she's perfect. Adding a hint that he still has some feelings about Katrina as a person. Andrew says she's hot and in that stilted voice Katrina tells him he's hot too and says oh yes master when he asks if she really 
think so. Jonathan says, okay, so how do we, you know, and Andrew says, who gets to, and Warren says he does, and the other two, meaning himself, and the other two protest that he didn't call it. He says he didn't need to call it, but don't worry, they can play with her when he's done. So more mix of that childishness and adolescence. It's if they are playing a game. We're now nearing the first major plot turn that I think of as the one quarter twist, though here it's a bit later than one quarter through the episode. It usually comes from outside the protagonist, spins the story in a new direction, and sometimes raises the stakes, which raises the question of who the protagonist is. An ideal protagonist is pursuing an active goal throughout a story, is the main point of view character, and has the most at stake. For Buffy's story, we see it through her point of view entirely. Any scene about her quest to find out what's wrong with her is from her point of view. She is also pursuing an active goal, though it's subtle, which is to find out what's wrong with her, whether she came back wrong, or more broadly, to explain her behavior to herself. It's not like she is always saying that, but she does say it to Tara, and it is clearly driving her. So she is the protagonist in that plot. She has the most at stake as well, because it is her very identity at stake. In the Katrina story, I see the protagonist as Warren. We do see a little bit from the point of view of the other two. We don't ever see Andrew by himself or Jonathan by himself. We do see Warren in the bar. We see him alone with Katrina in a moment, and he is the one who is actively pursuing the goal of controlling Katrina and taking his revenge on her. He is the ringleader. The other two do have an active goal as well, which is also horrible and just not targeted at any particular woman, but he is the one driving the main plot about Katrina. Of those three, he has the most at stake because as the ringleader, he would be most culpable if this were ever to come out. For Warren, the antagonist is Katrina. She resists his attempts to talk with her, and she will fight back. For Buffy, the antagonist is less clear. If you would like to hear more Buffy and the Art of Story content and you are a patron, you can listen to this month's bonus content. The episode is Buffy and the World of Work. It's real and it's not, and it covers world building and character development around work and money in season six, where the writers say the theme is real life and compares season six to how other seasons handled those issues, including looking at different characters like Xander and Willow and Tara to see how realistically they're written when it comes to things like money and jobs. I also ask whether Double Meat Palace, the episode, might be a metaphor for the writers and directors' experiences. If you're not already a patron and you want to get access to that bonus and others, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. 
at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Lisa M. Lilly, L-I-S-A, M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Also, I have been trying out a beta feature on Patreon where I can make modules of my course on plotting your novel available so that you can pick and choose if one part or another interests you. Patrons can get the very first module free. It is about ideas. If you're thinking about writing a novel and aren't sure what to write about, you might find this module on finding and generating ideas helpful. It's free for patrons. If you're not a patron though, you can buy the course module. It's only $10 if you want to check that out. Go to patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lilly slash shop. There is a second module there if you have a lot of ideas for a novel and aren't sure what to choose, or maybe you started writing, but you are plagued by the fear that some other idea might work better, or you find yourself jumping from one to another and starting novels, but never going anywhere with them. The module on choosing a good idea for your novel might be useful to you. Warren is one antagonist, or more specifically, I see him as acting in the place of an antagonist. As I'll talk about later, I think this is more a story of Buffy versus herself, and Warren stands in for that in the more action-oriented parts of the plot. The challenges sorting these out are part of why when I first watched this episode, I didn't love it. I liked it, but didn't love it. One, the whole season, as you've all already guessed, is a bit dark for me. Also, I think part of me was struggling for what is the main story here, and this story really takes off now, and Buffy doesn't become directly involved until later. And it feels far down the road for these two plots to intersect. This episode is really well put together, but it takes a bit of looking at it to see how it fits. So at 13 minutes, 30 seconds, so already beyond a quarter way through, in a separate room, Katrina pushes Warren against a wall and kisses him. He says he missed her. She never should have left him. And he tells her to say that. And she does. And she calls him master. And he kisses her and tells her to say she loves him. And she says that as well. And he makes her say it again. And here too, there is that feeling that some part of his twisted motives are about really wanting to be back with her but then it's clear that that's not it or at least that is not the primary motive because he responds I love you too baby get on your knees this time she says yes Warren drops down to her knees and looks up when he asks what she said because it hits him she didn't call him master she repeats yes Warren and that's when she wakes up and stands up This is another uh, example of using suggestion to show what Warren wants Katrina to do. Katrina pushes Warren away. She stalks out and sees the other two and asks who the hell they are. And Andrew says, your master. And Katrina says, my what? Meanwhile, Warren is yelling at them to get the dampener. Katrina's appalled that he was going to share her with, quote, these two dorks, end quote. 
Jonathan looks really disturbed at her words, but he helps Hunt for the dampener. He doesn't find it or his glasses, but Andrew's got his, and he holds out the dampener and says, we're supervillains, call us master. Jonathan yells at him to wait and covers his eyes, but the device sparks and fizzles. Katrina asks if that's what Warren used on her, and she yells at him about first a skank bot and now this. He protests he just wanted to be with her, and she tells him she's not his girlfriend anymore. Jonathan says, she's your ex, and Andrew says, dude, that is messed up. And Katrina says, oh, you think? Katrina calls the trio little boys playing at being men, another reference to childhood. And she says directly what we have seen throughout. She says to Jonathan and Andrew, it's not a fantasy. It's not a game, you freaks. It's rape. And Jonathan says, what? And Andrew says, no, we didn't. And she cuts them off and tells them they are sick. I read Jonathan, and it could be the actor's delivery, as genuinely stunned. Like, really never thought about this. Andrew is a little more in on the supervillain thing. Like, he even says, we're supervillains, call me master. But he, too, seems taken aback that he just did not reason through that. This is how these characters are drawn. I'm not sure that today that would be believable. I think they would have to be written as much worse people. I think that it would be hard to write them today and have it be plausible that either of them are surprised by what Katrina says. But in the context of the times and the way the episode is written, it does appear that they are. Warren all along, I think it's pretty clear that this is criminal and is wrong. Katrina points at Warren and says that she'll see that he gets locked up for this and see how he likes getting raped. He tries to stop her, but she elbows him in the face, and she is about his height and looks like she might be in better shape. He runs after her, follows her up the stairs, and grabs her. She scratches his face drawing blood and he grabs one of the empty champagne bottles and clubs her on the head with it at 15 minutes 37 seconds she collapses he steps back and tells the others to get the dampener charged this too could be that first major plot turn coming a past one-third through but definitely growing out of the story spark of warren pursuing Katrina and now this happens the thing is it doesn't come from outside Warren so that's why I see Katrina waking up as the plot turn that then spins the story this continues it and escalates it and it is Warren's choice Warren crossing this line is very believable and built very well because it is in the heat of the moment. He is acting to stop her, first to protect himself from going to jail, and then reacts when she physically fights him. And while it is definitely crossing a line, and it's a line he's been approaching all season, that of being willing to murder a human being directly himself, 
It is nonetheless a line for this character, and the writers did a great job of stepping him over it, and I buy it, and you see him doing it, and Jonathan just stares at him. Andrew hesitates as Warren is yelling at them to charge the dampener, but when Warren tells him to go get Katrina up, Andrew goes over to her to try to do that. Warren says they'll give her another dose. Everything will be all right. Jonathan is still frozen and Andrew has put his hand on Katrina and he says, I don't think so. She's dead. At 16 minutes, 18 seconds, there's a cut to a commercial, a great hook, especially because this is a line for the show as well. Very rarely do we see any human being kill another human being. It's typically a demon or a vampire doing the killing and in Buffy, killing a human being is always a big deal. Even the trio until now tried but didn't succeed. They usually acted indirectly through demons. And the show does a good job of portraying their reactions and how big a deal this is. Andrew sits on the stairs rocking back and forth and saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Jonathan says this isn't happening, then turns to Warren and says, what the hell did you do? Warren pushes Jonathan against the wall and tells him they all did this. It's on all of them. This echoes Faith in season three. After she killed the deputy mayor, Faith tells Buffy she's on the line too, and whatever happens to Faith will happen to Buffy and she is just as responsible. Andrew is still saying, oh God, oh God, until Warren tells him to shut up. The three of them start talking about ways to get rid of it. Jonathan says he can't do a teleportation spell, quote, she's, it's too big, end quote. So more seeing Katrina not as a human being, as an it, and we had the trio seeing Buffy as the slayer, not a person, and we had Buffy reacting to Spike calling her an animal, In the last episode, he was still calling her a demon, and she is afraid that she is not human anymore. So this is a running theme. They consider a flesh-eating demon, but they can get out of control and could turn on the trio. Jonathan panics, and he points out that there's a link. Warren knew Katrina, and the police will figure it out. He and Andrew talk about going to the police, explaining that it was an accident, but Warren refuses. He's not going to jail. And then Jonathan argues that sooner or later, the Slayer will find out Katrina is dead. Warren Calmer now says maybe it should be sooner. And he tells them they have two problems, the body and the Slayer. What if they could take care of them both, quote, with one big stone, end quote. At 18 minutes, 24 seconds, the scene cuts to Willow watching Xander and Anya dance. She tells Buffy she's worried that the two of them will have to dance that way at the wedding, too. And Willow says, quote, because there's this last thread of dignity I've been desperately clinging to, end quote. Buffy asks how Willow is doing, and Willow says things are hard. It's easier when she's not alone, referring to her magic addiction. And Buffy apologizes for not being around more. This may answer or be an additional answer to my question about why Buffy is so hesitant to tell her friends about Spike. And some of it is... In addition to her feelings of shame about it, she is not there 
for Willow. She is not there for Dawn. She knows that, and it is largely because she's with Spike. Willow now says she understands, and quote, we know you've been all tied up, and quote, and Buffy says, what? Another reference to the sex games with Spike, but Willow says, with her job and slaying. Buffy goes up the stairs to the second level of the bronze, where there is that balcony and the railing. She's wearing a choker and looks very gothic going up the stairs, and to me, it called back to the episode Lie to Me, where Buffy's old friend Ford came to town and lured her to this vampire club and Lily, who Buffy met again in the episode Anne, went up those stairs a little bit similarly dressed to Buffy now to let the vampires into the club. The music shifts, becomes very haunting. We aren't hearing the band from the bronze anymore. Buffy holds the railing and looks down at the others, calling back to when Drusilla did the same thing in Lie to Me, look down at the vampires attacking the humans. Buffy then leapt up there, grabbed Drew, threatened her to make Spike back down. And now instead, Buffy stands there looking down and Spike appears behind her. I'm not sure if that callback is intentional. It almost feels like it must be. And it is such a striking contrast from who Buffy was in those early episodes, at least in terms of how she must see herself and her own actions. Spike presses against her and tells her, see, she tries to be with them, meaning her friends, but she always ends up in the dark with him. This has always frustrated me about this season that he is written as wanting to keep her away from her friends when in earlier seasons he liked Dawn, he liked Willow, he liked Joyce. Joyce is gone now, but he fought with the Scoobies. In season four, he he did it solely because he liked the fight, but he did hang out with them in season five at times. He fought with them after Buffy was gone, but now all he wants to do is keep Buffy away from them. On the other hand, in some ways it fits because usually when he and Buffy really connected, it was when Buffy was alone. She sat out on her back steps when Joyce was sick and Spike sat and talked with her or just sat quietly with her. When Buffy was brought back from the dead, they would talk out on the back porch alone. They talked in the alley of the magic box alone. Maybe he feels this is the only way to be with Buffy, that as long as she feels isolated from her friends, she turns to him. I was not convinced before, but given the way Buffy runs away from him, maybe this is what he sees as his only way to persuade her to connect with him more. He asks her what her friends would think of her if they knew all she's done, and he runs his hand down her arm and says, quote, if they knew who you really were, end quote. The camera closes up on Buffy's face alone. She whispers, don't, but she's also clearly enjoying what he's doing. We see his hand slide down the side of her skirt, cut back to her face, and Spike says, stop me. And this is another way to show what's happening off screen and suggest the rest. Buffy breathes harder. We see Spike's face as well. She closes her eyes and he tells her not to close them, to look 
down at her friends. And we're near the midpoint of the episode, about 21 and a half minutes in. And this is where I usually look for some sort of midpoint commitment by the protagonist or a major reversal. And here we get both from Buffy. Spike says, that's not your world. You belong in the shadows with me. And he says, look at your friends and tell me you don't love getting away with this right under their noses. Buffy going along with this, not trying to stop Spike, is a reversal for her. It's not who she sees herself as. And this calls back to the episode Dracula at the beginning of season five. She recognized this darkness in herself. Dracula told her that her power came from the darkness in part, but when he showed it to her, she couldn't resist him. But when he finally showed it to her, that snapped her out of it and she rejected him. Now she is going along with Spike, who is mostly making that seem pitch. So that's a reversal for Buffy. It's also something of a commitment because she is risking being seen here. This is the most obvious she has been. I also am troubled and unsure if it's consistent with Spike because despite that he was usually talking with Buffy when she was alone, he was supportive. He tried to help Buffy feel better, to help her sort out her feelings, even if it was only by listening and letting her say things she was afraid to tell anyone else. So it doesn't feel quite consistent to me that he keeps pushing her to become someone else, to move into the darkness, or to convince her that that's where she's belonged when he knows about her ties with her family and friends. That's why she could always defeat him. The other thing is Spike has always been fun-loving. When he's tried to be all dark and mysterious, it's rarely worked for him. He's sexy because he gets so much joy out of life as an undead person. And he's also always respected Buffy and wanted her for who she is. That part might be more of a stumbling block for me because given the changes in Buffy, I can see a little more how he might believe that she does belong in the darkness with him, but it's as if his joy in life is gone. But now I'm going to do another on the other hand, and then I will stop. You can see I'm very conflicted about whether Spike is consistent. There is the history with Drusilla. They were such a close couple, and that fits best with the idea that different writers have said about Buffy and Joss Whedon has said that vampires are dark. They are not meant to be. He didn't mean to write them as romantic figures for humans. He wanted them to represent the challenges of adolescence that have to be overcome. He at least did not want Spike to be a romantic lead. So perhaps this fits in that sense. I have a little less trouble with seeing Buffy's actions as consistent. I I don't think they're consistent with Buffy from seasons one through five. But if we accept that coming back changed her, she is so struggling, perhaps Buffy would make radically different 
choices. That is a good lesson as well. If you need your character to be significantly different, to act in very different ways than they would have as you've built them to date, if you're writing a novel and you're three quarters through or you're writing a series, you need an event, you need something that happens to them that can explain that change. The scene cuts to the magic box. Outside of it, Willow runs into Tara, who's walking out with a grimoire. She drops it to her side, almost as if to hide it, and Willow tells her she doesn't need to hide. Willow is doing better, no spells for 32 days. If Tara was checking on her, it's okay. Tara says she wouldn't do that. She was just looking for Buffy. This is a great way to intersect the Willow and Tara story with the Buffy storyline because otherwise there'd be no real reason to put Willow and Tara together, but seeing them moves their arc a tiny bit, though it is not necessary for this episode. Just before they part, Tara says she's glad Willow's doing better and smiles. Haunting music starts playing. I had to look up the song because it fit the scene to come so well. It is Out of This World by Bush. You can find uh, a, a video of it on YouTube. Buffy in the graveyard at dark starts patrolling but slowly approaches Spike's crypt. Inside, he senses her and walks to the door. He's been standing around with his shirt unbuttoned for whatever reason, shades of angel back in the day. He puts his hand against the door, but when he opens it, she's not there. A quick update on the book edition of Buffy and the Art of Story, Season 3, Part 1. I just got the changes back from the proofreader yesterday, so I'll be making those over the next few weeks, getting it ready for publication, and I hope it will be released within four to six weeks. So for those of you who really like to read the books and revisit those seasons, there will be another one available for you. I really enjoyed the final pass through this because so much of season three, as is coming up in this episode, echoes in season six. If you haven't looked at the books before, every chapter is an episode from the podcast, but edited to be more clear, to be more organized and focused and condensed a bit. I include at the beginning the topics that are covered in the chapter and what's fun about doing it is I often find that there are more topics than I realized and more things about the storytelling that really stand out when I revisit everything in print. At the end in each chapter are questions for your writing that could help you think about different ideas for characters or further develop your plot. Because people have told me how helpful they find those, I tried to pull out the absolute best things that could be helpful from the chapter. If you want to check out the current books, you can find them at lisalily.com slash Buffy books, and I will let you know when season three, part three is available.
Buffy is heading through the graveyard telling herself, don't think about the evil blood-sucking fiend. She repeats that again, hears someone scream and says, thank you, and runs. But in the next scene, she becomes disoriented. One moment, she's trying to help a crying woman who's lying on the ground on her side. Then she's fighting off demons. Spike helps her fight, but she punches and hits him rather than the demon. Finally, as she fights the demons, suddenly she hits the young woman who we can see is Katrina and Katrina's body rolls down the hill. Buffy runs after it as Spike kills the last demon. Throughout all of this, Buffy is hearing whispers of, what did you do? What did you do, Buffy? At 27 minutes, 33 seconds, Buffy realizes Katrina's dead and thinks she did it. Another Katrina watches from behind the tree as Spike pulls Buffy away. He insists it was an accident, tells her to go home to bed, he'll sort it out. Out. And Spike says to Buffy, trust me. Another time that we have that phrase come up as we've seen it throughout the episode. Andrew and Warren watch all of this through a monitor and Warren says two problems, one stone. Katrina gets in the van. Warren says, nice job. She totally bought it. Katrina says, yeah. And looking troubled morphs into Jonathan who says, some of my best work. Andrew asks what's next and Jonathan in a dead voice suggests the night's young. There might be more girls they can kill. Warren tells them to stick to the plan. Katrina is Buffy's problem now. Their faces show the differences between them. Warren looks perfectly fine now that the plan is working. Jonathan looks sick. And Andrew, as before, is somewhere in between the two. Part of him seems freaked out, but part of him is thrilled. At 29 minutes 7 seconds, Buffy tosses and turns in bed. Spike crawls in beside her, holds her, and tells her it'll be their secret. She turns and kisses him. It's not clear if that really happens, but now the lighting changes. We're definitely in a dream. Buffy's on top of Spike, straddling him. His hands are cuffed over his head. He's lying on his back. She flashes to killing Katrina, and then Katrina is on her back. Her hands overhead in cuffs and Buffy says do you trust me there flashes to Buffy on top of Spike with a stake she lowers the stake we don't see it connect the scene flashes back to Katrina whose eyes are open evoking that moment when Spike tells Buffy to keep her eyes open during sex Buffy opens her eyes now for real breathing hard she's awake in bed alone at 30 minutes 20 seconds it's still nighttime and Buffy wakes up dawn she apologizes for not being around more not being everything she should be tells dawn she loves her dawn is pretty freaked out by all of this sits up and asks what's wrong Buffy tells her there was an accident a girl was hurt Dawn asks if the girl is all right. Buffy says, no, I'm sorry. They hug, and then Buffy says she has to tell what she did, go to the police. And Dawn is really upset by that, and Buffy says, Donnie, I have to. This feels very consistent with how Buffy has always reacted to the taking of human life. How devastated she was when she thought she killed Ted how she reacted to Faith killing the deputy mayor. And these words, Donnie, I have to, are what Buffy said to Dawn in the gift before she dived 
into that portal to save the world and sacrifice herself. Dawn realizes, though, that they're going to take Buffy away, and she gets really angry. She doesn't believe Buffy's sorry. She says Buffy is never there. Quote, you can't even stand to be around me, unquote. She says she knows Buffy didn't want to come back. Quote, you were happier where you were. You want to go away. End quote. And Dawn tells her to go. She's crying. She says Buffy's not really there anyway. Dawn is both right and wrong here. Uh, Buffy hasn't wanted to be back, but it's not about Dawn, except that in some ways it is in the sense that Dawn is not enough of a reason for Buffy to feel connected, to be there, even though Buffy knows she's failing Dawn. And while this isn't my favorite Dawn, her seeing everything as being about her, it is a terrible thing for her. Buffy is barely there, and now Buffy is talking about confessing to a murder and and probably would be gone for a very, very long time, leaving Dawn alone again. This is around the part in the episode that would have the last major plot turn that should grow from the midpoint and take the story in yet another new direction. And I think here it was Buffy's decision to turn herself in, which grew from that midpoint reversal slash commitment where Buffy does this thing that makes her feel so bad about herself, that confirms for her that there is something wrong with her and I feel like, yes, she might do this anyway. She might turn herself in anyway because of how she feels about having killed a human, thinking she killed a human. But also, part of Buffy, Dawn is right, does want to go away. She wouldn't have to make choices anymore. She wouldn't be able to see Spike. And she feels that she is wrong about so many things in her life. At 33 minutes, 18 seconds, Buffy is outside the police station, heading in to turn herself in. Spike intercepts Buffy in the alley outside the police station and says, what do you think you're doing? And Buffy says the right thing for once. Spike grabs her and throws her on the ground. He says he can't let her do it. The police will never believe her. Demons, time going wonky. They won't think she killed anyone. And he tells her there's nothing to show the police when she says... Uh, she'll point to the body and Buffy says what did you do and Spike responds what I had to I went back and I took care of it it doesn't matter now no one will ever find her interesting that Spike says her not it and then a cop says where'd they find her and the other one says the river she washed up half a mile from the cemetery and the scene cuts to a commercial another great hook we return at 34 minutes 29 seconds Buffy insists she has to turn herself in. Why is he trying to stop her? And Spike says, because he loves her. And Buffy responds, no, you don't. And Spike says, you think I haven't tried not to? Buffy punches him to the ground and says, try harder. He asks her why she's doing this, why she's turning herself in. And Buffy says, a girl is dead because of me. And Spike responds, and how many people are alive because of you? How many have you saved? One dead girl girl doesn't tip the scale. So lots of echoes of season three here of Faith. When she killed the deputy and got rid of the body, it was in the ocean or the river and it was found just as Katrina's body is found. I think this is a pretty clear lesson from the Buffyverse. It never works getting rid 
the body or getting rid of the evidence. The cover-up never works. Also, Spike is making the very arguments that Faith made about herself, that, yeah, she killed the deputy mayor, but it was by accident, and she and Buffy have done so much good as slayers. I think Faith said, who's going to cry over one bystander who gets killed? And Buffy says, I will. Buffy is completely consistent here. She rejects the argument just as she did when Faith made it. And it's nice to see this consistency. Uh, Her moral code does not switch when she's the one who could be in trouble. She's the one who could go to jail. Though there is that element that Dawn is right. Part of Buffy wants to go to jail. But I believe either way, this would be her response. And Buffy says, now that's all it is to you, isn't it? Just another body. She hits him again and says, you can't understand why this is killing me, can you? And Spike says, why don't you explain it? Buffy starts beating him up really badly and he just says, come on, that's it. Put it on me. Put it all on me. That's my girl. This reminds me of Faith and Buffy in season four, the body switching episode when Faith in Buffy's body punched herself out because Buffy now says, I am not your girl. She's on top of him, much as Faith was on top of Buffy in that scene. She's punching him and she says, you don't have a soul. There is nothing good or clean in you. You're dead inside. You can't feel anything real. I could never be your girl. So much like the things that Faith was saying as she punched out her own face in season four. Now Buffy stops. She looks devastated and nearly sobs as she sees how badly she's beaten Spike. He's bleeding. He's bruised. He says to her, you always hurt the one you love, pet. Buffy goes into the police station. The desk sergeant is busy and tells her to give him a moment as he takes a call. It's about an ID on the body. And he says Katrina's name. Buffy flashes to Katrina and Warren arguing at his house in that episode about April the robot and remembers Warren calling her Katrina. And Buffy says, Warren. Now she gets it. The sergeant gets off the phone to ask what she needs, but she is already out the door. At 37 minutes 27 seconds at the magic box, Anya finds the demon Buffy fought in a book. There are drawings. She says the demons cause localized temporal disturbances and adds that it can cause vivid hallucinations. Xander says, Katrina was probably dead before Buffy stumbled across her. Buffy is convinced the demons didn't kill Katrina. Warren did. Willow asks how she can be sure, and Buffy says, you always hurt the one you love. Echoing Spike, but perhaps also commenting on the next interaction, because Dawn asks if this means Buffy's not going away. Buffy says yes, she's not going anywhere, and she walks over to Dawn, seeming about to hug her, and Dawn's dog off into the back room, slamming the door. The others agree they'll go after Warren, and Buffy says he's not going to get away with it. At 38 minutes, 36 seconds, Warren says, we're going to get away with it. 
This scene is a climax of sorts for Warren's subplot. The climax is where the protagonist and antagonist have their final confrontation and resolve the conflict. And here, between Warren and Katrina, Warren already overpowered Katrina. Obviously, he killed her, but she still had the power through her death to take him down. He could have ended up in jail, but instead, Warren prevails. He points to the coroner report it is marked confidential so we know they've hacked in and he says there's a finding of injuries consistent with a fall and it is ruled suicide i think the coroners aren't so smart in sunnydale but perhaps spike unwittingly made it worse by making it look like she might have dived into the river and somehow i suppose hit her head jonathan asks what about buffy and warren says it wasn't that hard messing her game up if she figured it out they'll take care of her and it's clear what he means andrew's expression is a mix of impressed and apprehensive and he says they really got away with murder and then smiles and says that's kind of cool warren looks toward jonathan but he looks off to the side and seems kind of upset and says cool further emphasizing the differences between the three of them now the question is what is the climax in Buffy's plot and is there falling action which is where the writers tie up loose ends resolve outstanding subplots we already resolved Warren's plot and some of my struggle with the episode on first watch was that I was probably seeing Warren's plot as the main plot and it threw me because it started later it didn't have plot points where they normally would appear in the episode and it resolved but we still have Buffy's issues I had been seeing on first watch her plot as just being the flip of Warren's as being about Katrina but when we see her plot as this quest to find out what is wrong with her or maybe to confirm that she came back wrong now we are reaching the climax in that and it really is a Buffy versus Buffy plot though Warren takes on that antagonist role it is Buffy versus herself and she sits with Tara in the living room Tara's on the couch Buffy faces her she's sitting on the coffee table and she asks Tara if she's sure and Tara assures Buffy she checked there's nothing wrong with her and Buffy asks then why can Spike hurt her Tara says there's nothing wrong but shifting Buffy back to this dimension altered her on a molecular level but it's just surfacy only enough to confuse Spike's chip she compares it to a sunburn Buffy seeming distraught looks down and says I didn't come back wrong and Tara says no you're the same Buffy with a deep tropical cellular tan almost panic now Buffy wants Tara to check again and says there must be something wrong with her she says quote this can't be me it isn't me she goes on to ask why she feels this way if there's nothing wrong why she lets Spike do those things to her and Tara says you mean hit you Buffy looks away Tara catches on and she's very kind she's surprised she says oh really Buffy says she's supposed to hate Spike he's everything she's against but the only time she feels anything is when and she breaks off and then begs Tara not to tell anyone she can't stand the way they look at her and I 
I think this episode really does answer my questions on that because it's Buffy cannot stand the way she feels about herself and she is putting that onto her friends because Tara is her friend and is being very kind and supportive and non-judgmental. And of course, we know Xander would be a total jerk, but there's no reason to think that Willow might not at least get to where Tara is. It's Buffy who can't stand how she sees herself. Tara asks her if she loves Spike. Buffy looks crushed and doesn't answer. Tara reassures her that it's okay if she does. He's done a lot of good and he loves Buffy. And she adds it's okay if Buffy doesn't love him. She's going through a hard time. Buffy breaks in to say, so what, it's okay to use Spike? She says it's wrong, and Tara tells her it's not that simple. Buffy says, I'm wrong. Tell me that I'm wrong. Please, please don't forgive me. She repeats that over and over as she breaks down and cries. She bends forward her head on Tara's lap, and Tara comforts her. And that is the end of the episode. And those last lines are why I say Buffy cannot stand the way she sees herself. She cannot forgive herself for not being who who she thinks she should be for not feeling how she thinks she should feel. I love Tara's growth in this episode. Maybe not growth because she's the same Tara, but we get to see her more as who she is. We see her strengths here in a way that we didn't before. I was aware of them, that Tara was this very kind, very strong person, very supportive, but she was always with Willow, almost always with Willow and seen in that light. And I love seeing her being there for Buffy, doing this investigation, being surprised by this, and yet being able to be there for Buffy, to let Buffy feel her feelings, to try to reassure her, and to be a really good friend. And it adds to my sadness for Buffy because Tara has been perfect through this. You couldn't ask for a better friend or a better reaction, but because Buffy cannot forgive herself, she cannot give herself the grace that Tara does, it doesn't help her, at least not right now. That's it for this episode, other than foreshadowing. If you're not staying around for foreshadowing and spoilers, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for season six, episode 14, Older and Far Away, where once again, things go badly wrong on Buffy's birthday. Well, I've talked quite long about this episode. It's been so fun to talk about one that I think is so well put together and has so many good things in it. So I will try to be briefer in spoilers. The Dawn and Buffy interactions foreshadow next week. Dawn's anger that Buffy is so ready to turn herself in to be away from Dawn. How personally Dawn takes that. How alone Dawn feels. All of this foreshadows why Dawn confides in a guidance counselor in the next episode. Dawn has no one to talk to. And we see in this episode that despite that Buffy is trying a little harder, she is not there. So that is a great setup for next week 
when the counselor turns out to be a vengeance demon who traps everyone in the house so that they have to spend some time with Dawn. Tara's supportiveness continues in the next episode, and we get to see her be a little sassy with Spike now that she knows this secret, and that is so much fun. And we see Tara really being there for Willow as well when Anya pressures her to do magic to get everyone out of the house. The interaction with Willow and Tara and Tara's conversation with Buffy where Buffy says Willow's doing better all set the stage for Willow and Tara to begin to reconcile in the next episode. They're both excited that they will see each other at Buffy's birthday and in the episode they move toward getting together again. Spike's actions, much as I don't like them, um, him being more and more like an abusive partner, isolating Buffy, telling her he's the only one there for her, foreshadows that he will later escalate to an outright sexual assault on Buffy. Though that episode doesn't exactly frame it that way, but I will save that for the episode. Lots of challenging things about that episode and that plot development. It is definitely foreshadowed here. And we have some inklings here of the split in the trio. Warren will eventually cut out Jonathan, and we keep seeing Jonathan is the one at the most risk. In the freeze ray episode, he was the one who used the freeze ray, got his hand frozen. This one, his hand burns from the cerebral dampener. Warren is going to put him in a demon suit and throw him through a force field that could kill him to test it. There are lots of ways we see that Warren is pushing Jonathan out Probably because Jonathan has a little bit more of a conscience than the others. Jonathan has been the one saying, hey, we don't want to kill Buffy. Buffy has saved our lives. She's helped us. In this episode, it's clear that he is far more troubled than Andrew, or at least Andrew is much more willing to try to overcome that and see himself as a supervillain. He's more excited by that idea. Jonathan is more troubled. And Warren most likely sees that. These same events foreshadow that Jonathan eventually will try to help Buffy in a fight against Warren because he is finally letting himself see where this path he is taking is leading. He should have seen it before, but he was in denial. And now having taken part in murdering Katrina and covering it up, and trying to rape her, he can't fool himself anymore, though he's not going to turn a new leaf immediately. That is it for spoilers and foreshadowing and for the episode. Thank you again for listening. And a special thank you, as always, to the patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for Older and Far Away, where Dawn unknowingly encounters a demon who makes Buffy's birthday bash more than a little scary. If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend about it, or share it on social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram 
Instagram at Lisa M. Lily. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.